Welcome to Making Waves. On today's show, we have two artists that come from very different backgrounds. Lisa Jackson is an Anishinaabe filmmaker from Toronto, and Christine Webster is a composer and media artist from Paris. What they have in common is that they're both creating work for virtual reality that is neither a video game, nor a film, nor a musical composition. They are thinking of VR truly as its own artistic medium, with its own set of possibilities. We'll be hearing from Christine Webster in the second half of the show. Her work, The Empty Room, uses the unique spatial audio imaging inherent in VR as an integral element of creating an interactive musical experience. But first, we'll join Lisa Jackson. Her new VR film, Bidabin, First Light, transposes the landscape around Toronto City Hall into a futuristic time where nature overtakes and reclaims the city. In our conversation, Lisa underlined how Indigenous myths, symbols, and values inform the structure and imagery of her VR piece. Well, it must be interesting to see it out there, you know, where the crush of the city is not so much. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I thought that was um, interesting irony because the, this place is a kind of refuge from getting away from the city uh, to getting, um, you could say, more more situated in a natural environment. And so your piece is, you know, the natural environment taking over the city. So it, it's an interesting context for it. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say that even for me, seeing it uh, in situ there in Nathan Phillips Square in the same spot was more affecting than I thought it would be, given how many times I've experienced the piece already. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. But the, it's going to have all these different kind of contexts, which is uh, which is great. And um, I'm learning more about it as it as it goes around, because, you know, it just feels like this piece, people bring so much of themselves to it that, um, you know, you learn what it is kind of the more people see it and the more you hear about it. So how is it that you think people bring so much of themselves to it? Is that, is that have to do with partly the technology or the, or the place of the story? Um, I think that the reason people bring different things to it is, uh, partially that it's so open to interpretation, you know, uh, the closest relative to VR is kind of film, I guess. And film, I mean, both VR, my VR, Bedabin and film have a beginning, a middle and an end. But I would say, you know, is there a story, quote unquote, in Bedabin? I'm not sure about that. Uh, there's definitely a flow. There are things that happen in a certain order. Uh, but what those things, how they register with each person is a little bit different. And so I think, you know, especially we live in a society that's sort of primed for, uh, apocalypse stories or zombie stories or things like that. And so, uh, getting something that is a future state, uh, we actually don't even really have much of a term for a future state, uh, where, you know, current structures are no longer in place except to call it an apocalypse right and so mm -hmm. i think that uh depending on what your feelings are around being in a space that no longer has you know 
transit system or yoga studios or, you know, uh, all these things. And that is crumbling in some ways. Some people find that a joyous, wonderful, uh, place that they want to just spend more time in and other people may find it a bit scary, although that's less common, but for sure what people are confronted with, I think are their own thoughts about what a possible future could be where nature takes over. And I think that it also stretches out too, uh, with the inclusion of indigenous languages and some, what you would call traditional or land-based sort of ways of being in the city that you see in the piece. Uh, you know, there is a lot of evidence of people using the space from the canoe and the underground subway tunnel to drawing racks on the rooftop and, you know, agriculture and stuff like that. Uh, this idea that we're both stretching back in time to traditional ways uh, and then uh, looking forward, I think there's all sorts of assumptions that people bring uh, as viewers to those two things. And they kind of have interesting collisions for a lot of people within the piece, right? And so it puts you in a place of really having to figure out how you feel about the whole thing. Uh, and that's not that common these days in any kind of uh, film story. To, you know, it does tend to be a little bit more contained. This is what you should think. This is what you should feel. Uh, sound design in particular does tend to push us one way or the other. And we went to a lot of pains to keep it really open so that people could feel what they were feeling and not have it be uh, directed too much by what the music was doing or, you know, the exact tone of the piece was kept somewhat neutral. I guess also the participatory aspect that people are in kind of control of how they navigate through the film. Um, does that um, I, I guess that lends an element of authorship uh, to the viewer that you wouldn't give in a, in a, in a, in a film. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, um, you know, one of the things I've found, I've done some VR, wouldn't, there's lots of people who have done a lot more of it than I have. Uh, but, you know, my experience in VR too is once you go into room scale, which means you put up those sensors and it allows you to physically move around and have the environment you know, maintain its authenticity within the headset. Uh, there's something about that. I get a bit queasy. I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit easier to get queasy within um, VR headsets. And once you can move around in this room scale way, I find it suddenly just feels like reality uh, when you're inside there. And yeah, you're right. You do have agency. You can look around. You can see this. You can see that. The frame obviously doesn't end. It's all around you. And so, you know, that sense, am I missing something? Like a lot of our our reactions are sort of in a, in a regular movie is like you feel like you take in everything that's there. But in this, you get to sort of choose what you focus on and how long and how much of it you take in. And there is inevitably a bit of a feeling like you might have missed something, right? Because what happened back there and... Um, so I think that that, and, and beyond that, I actually feel, and this is something I feel more and more aware of in this piece is that the very physicality of the experience, uh, puts us in our bodies in a way that we often aren't when we're watching a movie or something. It's, it's very visceral and physical. And, uh, because, you know, some people, you know, there's a couple scenes where people feel, 
a little bit of a fear of heights or they feel like their body feels kind of at one point you're in the sky world, right? You're suspended out there. So those kind of physical reactions uh, really center people in their bodies. And I actually think uh, more and more that this is a really amazing tool from an indigenous perspective, because a lot of us, we talk about, you know, becoming, you know, the idea of, um, you know, uh, being connected, not just to our intellect, but to our emotions, our spirit and our body and the sort of balance, uh, that's a healthy balance between those things. And one of the things we detach from most easily in a lot of respects in the city is our physical body, right? We go to the gym for half an hour or whatever. So I think that this centering in the body is something actually very, um, a very good kind of, if you don't manipulate people with it, way to kind of get people feeling their body and also feeling the space they're in. Because a lot of uh, Indigenous folks, and I've heard this a lot from artists, they talk about, you know, the access to us being connected to the land and our environment is actually being connected to our body first, right? So that is something that I've been kind of noticing is that I think it just opens people up in a deeper way to have that physical sensation within the VR piece. And it, and it sort of gets past their intellect and, and their first reactions when going through the experience are visceral, they're emotional. Some people find it quite spiritual. And then the thinking part comes later. Right. Yes, I would, I would agree. I think it, and that comes with seeing it multiple times. Um, we had a big group here once uh, the, on the weekend, and uh, they all saw it several times through watching the others use it, uh, just a flattened screen version for the other people. And uh, they were picking up and noticing different layers of the piece and different aspects of the meaning and trying to puzzle it together as they saw it, you know, the repeated times. Did anyone notice the turtle? <laughs> uh, yes, they caught on to that near the end, actually, and I, I hadn't seen it before either. <laughs> turtle is very subtle. I laugh because the turtle isn't crucial to the piece, but it's one of those little things that uh, is in there, and I'm kind of fond of the turtle, and uh, but it is not uh, everyone who sees it, so I, I always ask. But what I will, part of the thing is, you know, I think uh, it, there's no right way to interpret what's in the piece but for a lot of indigenous people there are symbols or there's there's a sort of symbol world happening in the piece uh, that operate on a totally literal level on one hand and but also you know can can have layers of meaning and so things like the turtle you know uh the woman uh looks up at the moon and that's when she has sort of a some peace uh, from her digging there in uh, one of the scenes and you know in a lot of for a lot of indigenous people the moon is grandmother moon and uh, offers wisdom particularly for women and is connected to the waters through controlling the tides and women's cycles and life giving so you know there's sort of these um, symbol worlds that are more than just symbols that uh, are at play in the in the piece, you know, going into the sky world or the connection to the stars, you know, on one level, it's just something that I found totally riveting the idea of being in the middle of the city and being able to see all the stars if, if the city lights were gone. 
Um, but also, you know, many creation stories uh, from the Cree to the Mohawk to the Ojibwe uh, say we came from the stars. You know, we're star people and we go back to the stars when we pass away. And uh, there's various versions and, you know, different uh, ways that that comes through. But, uh, you know, having the star world, that's not a direct reference to any particular star story, but it is kind of uh, in a broader way, looking at all our relations, right? The idea of all our relations, which is um, underlined by, you know, the Thanksgiving address in, in the last scene. I guess really the, you had worked in VR before. Um, so in a way, this piece was really conceived to be in VR from the beginning. And, and in a way, these these kind of multi-layered meanings and really are almost only seem possible in this medium. Yeah, I think you're right, because, you know, I did do, I did, technically, they would call it a 360 video that I did as sort of a director for hire for CBC's The Current, and it was about um, one story of a woman who lost her daughter on the Highway of Tears in northern BC, and that was more of a documentary kind of straightforward uh, story, like there's definitely a story in that beginning, middle, end, it's very kind of controlled uh, but for this piece, yeah, it really suits this and it actually um, grew out of and you could call it a sister project to another project that I'm still working on, which uh, will be done in about a year called Transmissions and Transmissions has a, a similar symbol world, uh, but it's a, a, a large scale three part immersive audiovisual installation. You know, you would go enter into it and, um, you know, it covers a large kind of footprint. And but it also looks at language. It also looks at this idea of sort of a future uh, and, a, you know, what the cities might become. Um, I'm not sure if I should stop because I hear a, there's going to be a siren. It's appropriate. Yeah, I know. I know. I, that's why I was going to keep going, because it almost seemed like very apropos. Uh, so it uh, it is in that same world. And that grew out of, you know, I have been very interested in how indigenous languages within their very structures, you know, linguistically are radically different views on our place in the world. And I don't speak my language, which would be Anishinaabemowin, my mother's language, or Ojibwe. But, uh, you know, 10 or so years ago, I really became fascinated with kind of researching. I read something that just for me was a eureka moment um, about how fundamentally different indigenous languages uh, view everything. The worldviews are totally, totally different. And linguists, in fact, uh, find North American indigenous languages very fascinating. I mean, Russian or Hindi would be far more similar to English than North American indigenous languages. And so uh, that sparked off, you know, a few years of me really reading everything I could get my hands on, talking to language learners, fluent language speakers, teachers, all sorts of folks. And, and, some, and I had planned to make a conventional documentary about this, but it felt inadequate for the uh, subject matter. And like, I just felt like I would be explaining that the very uh, form of what I was discovering demanded something more um, radical in the way that it, it 
told the story of how these languages are different. And so I let that go, but then uh, years later came back to it, realizing it would be amazing as an installation. And then uh, shortly after that, realizing it could actually really also suit um, a VR. So the VR uh, is a bit faster to put together than than the installation. So the VR has come out first, but the installation uh, is going to be done in the fall of 2019 and uh, looks like we'll be premiering it both in Hamilton and in Vancouver. So, but that was really where it came from. But the VR piece absolutely was about place. And I would say in a lot of my films, because I've been a filmmaker, um, place or a sense of place what the tone is of a place, what the style or mood is, has always been really important to me. So this sort of took that to the next step. I'm wondering if you can talk about how the um, working with the VR team is different than working with uh, whatever crew uh, of people you would have for a film. Well, um, I was very lucky to work with the National Film Board on this. Um, my producers there uh, in the Vancouver office, uh, the team that I was working with were fantastic. And I have to say, it really is one of the amazing things about Canada having, you know, a public producer um, like the NFB, because, you know, their position is that, you know, this was a good project. I'm a storyteller, I had something to say, but they didn't require me to learn everything about creating VR, right? So they became uh, my right hand and also sort of my translators as we worked with the technical company, Jam3, that executed the plan. But they were sort of the translators that I didn't have to go through a massive learning curve. I did learn, obviously, about the differences, but uh, it was all kind of through translation because we are working with an emerging technology. Uh, there are things that VR can do that are pretty impressive, but there's a lot of limitations. So even from the idea from day one, we agreed jointly that we would not compromise the quality of this world, that the top priority was a beautiful... Uh, authentic world that we would put people into and even that pushes the technology of our day quite far like you have to have a very powerful computer to run it because when you combine room scale with the user moving around with graphics at such a high level as we have it does really strain um, a system and it works but we're on the edge of it you know and there's user triggered elements with the text and things like that so uh, I was able to totally be a, an artist you know learning about what the parameters were technologically that I had to work within, but allowing the NFB to really take that and translate it to a technical group to execute well. And had I been that person, it would have been difficult because I don't know that we'd be speaking exactly the same language. And my lack of understanding of, you know, how Unity, the video game platform that was used to create it worked, or how porting you know, Matthew's beautiful 3D visuals into Unity would affect, you know, design considerations that, you know, those were really um, taken care of. And I think the, the reason that worked so well is that, you know, the team at the NFB also really fundamentally were connected to the creative in as like to the same depth that I was. So I had a lot of faith in their ability to do the translation. So in some ways it was like directing through, you know, 
those tin cans with strings because, you know, normally I would be directing a lot of people more immediately um, rather than it going through levels. But there's always a layer of that, especially if you do fiction, you, you, you know, you're talking to department heads and those department heads are talking to their crews and, you know, it can just be unwieldy. As a documentary filmmaker, your crew is very small and you really see everything right in front of you. So, um, I would say that's the biggest difference and, um, made me very, very grateful for my awesome team. <laughs> what, what would be uh, future projects in the VR medium that are, that you can see now being possible that you may not have realized when you set out on this, pro on this particular project? Yeah. Well, um, you know, for me, I don't know uh, what VR may be in my future. If any, like now I'm sort of, I seem to always do something different. You know, I'm working on my first installation now and stuff like that. So there may be something, but I would say in general, uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes. This piece has been, um, you know, has been at the LA film festival, the Melbourne festival. It seems to really be finding a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interest in it around and a lot of people are really feel like, I mean, one of the things that's been said is that you sort of use the grammar of VR to in service of what you were trying to communicate, whereas so often the VR feels like it's um, attempting something or it's not quite getting there. You're very conscious of its uh, limitations or just the technology and it gets in the way of the story. So I think that the idea of starting to discover from an artistic perspective what that grammar is, is landing. I think that, um, for me anyway, I think the idea of creating a world that doesn't feel like a video game and isn't real, but is somewhere in between, I think that's a really rich area um, because you often in VR, you get a documentary VR, right, where you're they put you in a village in Africa or you know, amongst a herd of buffalo, which is really cool too. Um, or <laughs> you're in, um, you know, a video game world, totally created, mm -hmm. and you feel that, you know. But this really manages to harness uh, what's possible within, um, you know, the computerized world to create something magical or, uh, you know, unreal, but layer it on top of something that uh, connects to our reality. So I think that the idea that we could make worlds and that the other thing that I feel, this is just me, is that, as I was saying, the, um, the physicality of it has been used, but people tend to, in my view, use it in a manipulative or gimmicky way, sometimes with the best of intentions. But, you know, putting someone in the middle of a war zone would be one example of like, you know, we want you to know what it feels like to be in a square when a bomb goes off. Uh, and certainly that has a profound physical effect. Um, for me, it seems a, a bit like extreme sometimes, right? Um, uh, although it's effective or putting someone in a refugee camp or an Ebola uh, hospital, those are some of the ways it's uh, been used. And also, you know, even things like let's put someone in the shoes of what it's like to be a black person in the United States getting stopped by the cops, right? So these things that are uh, effective, but they're a little heavy handed somehow. So the idea that uh, we could be a bit more artful in what it means to be embodied within an experience like this. Uh, I hope that gets taken away. And lastly, although, um, you know, VR is a visual medium, people were saying in a, in a more 
obvious way, a lot of people said, oh, we've been told you can't put uh, text in VR. So there's language, right? There's written text in this VR piece. Um, and it's more or less been said that that's not a viable thing. But I think the truth is a lot of people who make VR, A, I'm sure the technology is getting better, but people drawn to VR are often, you know, people who do a lot of video gaming or are very visual. And so I think the text elements just don't necessarily resonate. Uh, but for me, it's not like I'm just praying for a lot of text in VR, but I think it opens a lot of doors. And, um, you know, not that I don't think VR will ever be text-based, but for example, a lot of the documentaries take place in countries where they're speaking other languages. And for me, it's, you know, it's a bit offensive that there's often, they're almost never translated. There's no um, subtitles. And I feel like that's, as a documentary filmmaker, to me, that feels kind of disrespectful. Um, but the argument has often been, well, you know, we can't put text on screen. So in a very kind of basic way, I hope that uh, that trend shifts and uh, and we can, you know, hear what people are saying. <laughs> because I do think like, you know, documentary filmmaking 100 years ago in VR, there has been a tendency for uh, people of color to be in front of the screen, you know, as as subjects and pe white people to be behind and and the perspectives that are brought uh, sometimes you know they're not as ethical as I would like to see like the voice and the full humanity of the people we see in front beyond their role as victims uh, doesn't always get highlighted and I think that's a place where VR can really learn from what we've uh, kind of been through in documentary filmmaking yeah I can definitely see um, <clears throat> a value a value in it and as a outlet for documentary making and that there is more um, more of a fluid screen space where things can overlap more than they can in a in the flat cinematic screen. Um, that your piece certainly showed that that's uh, possible. Um, and uh, sorry, one thing that just mm -hmm. occurred just in one word, I would also hope that we can get more imagination into VR. I think that you know more art, more imagination more, you know, meaningful, not just, you know, oh, let's do a kid's story, you know, in a flower field, which could be great, of course. But I mean, real thoughtful, artistic approaches and uh, people doing what I think of as sort of world creation, whatever that may be, and maybe people we haven't heard of before. So this has been called a piece of, you know, Badabin's been called, it is, Indigenous Futurism. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting speculative uh, sci-fi style fiction coming from, you know, there's Afrofuturism and indigenous futurism. So there's really kind of uh, fun and entertaining and uh, work uh, in the written word in particular. But I think there's a lot of room in VR to just kind of play with some meaningful background attached as well, where there's, you know, meaning to what these speculative worlds are about in the same way that Badabin is just sort of gorgeous to look at and, an, and a thrilling experience, but there's depth in terms of what is, you know, what it's causing us to think about in our actual real world. Yes, definitely. I, I um, felt that, that one of the, the beautiful aspects of the piece is that it's able to tell stories visually uh, through very static scenes. 
um, that come to life through the medium, but also through the level of beauty that that you and the team brought to those, um, and um, that I think that it, that the poetic aspect of um, the medium uh, you touched on that, and I th- think that that is a very rich uh, area for future uh, development. Yeah. Lately, I've been saying all the time, it's not the what, it's the how. And I think that, you know, VR can give us a kind of a different how. It's a different, you know, is it... Anyway, and this gets back to what I was saying about the languages and indigenous ways of knowing. It's like, you know, the more I kind of occupy those understandings in my life, the more I think, you know... I think that there's a different way of actually just kind of taking things in. And even though I don't speak my language yet, there's almost like a different grammar. Uh, and I think that it's reaching, maybe Badabin in some way is reaching towards that sense of a kind of more connected understanding that would bring us closer to all the things that surround us and sustain us and not just that, oh, you know, water or the stars or the plants are just there as materials for use, but, you know, a sense that there's a spirit to them and, and we can, uh, actually be grateful and give that we are connected, you know, and not just a kind of nice to think about, but an actual way. So, uh, I think that it's not the what it's the how it's like sort of my motto right now. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's a similar difference from, uh, well, I guess about a hundred years ago, of film diverging from theater, that it was a you could tell the same stories, but the way you told them were different. Yeah, yeah, true, very true. That was Toronto director Lisa Jackson speaking about her VR film *Bidabin: First Light*. Lisa's emphasis on the how is picked up in our next conversation with Christine Webster. For her, the virtual reality medium extends the immersive qualities of electroacoustic music to a far greater extent than what is possible in concerts or other presentation platforms. So VR is associated now only um, with uh, 360 spherical film. Okay. And the VR, I'm making uh, real-time calculation. Uh, doesn't interest so much uh, people in France because uh, the film industry is very, very, um, uh, um, um, they, they want a, a narrative still and they want to have a, yes, it's basically a, yes. a different screen that they're creating for. I guess uh, cinema is afraid, the film industry is afraid of VR, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, even Steven Spielberg in the last film, he has shown uh, uh, Ready Player. Uh, he told, okay, guys, VR is cool, but don't, don't go too much into it. Uh, you will lose yourself, etc. So uh, I... I, I at my point of view, the film industry is very afraid of the loss of the narrativity. Right, but game, but games are able to still contain a narrative element. And games um, are still mm-hmm. narrative, and so the the the, uh, the disruptive uh, aspect of VR comes from uh, digital artists. Uh, 
musician or other kind of artist and uh, so we have to we have to fight to take our place <laughs> <laughs> well yeah yeah but i i see it quite differently i mean i guess games are, are an interesting challenge to the traditional uh, artistic media because it is a creative medium yes um and um but it doesn't get the respect i guess um despite yes. its success yes um. Yes, 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 yes. Gaming, gaming is pejorative. Uh, uh, how do you say that in English? Uh, um, specialization? No, pejorative. Oh. It's oh, uh, not not good. Not. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, pejorative, <laughs> I guess. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Uh, um, but then there's lots of, I think, games that are very deep and very uh, compelling. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, do you do you see empty room as a game? Absolutely not. It's uh, it's the first thing I say when I, I do uh, introduce the audiences to the experience. I say first of all, it's not a game at all. So it's made with a game engine, but it's not a game at all. You have nothing to. Uh, um, uh, you, you don't have to kill anybody. <laughs> there, there are no monsters. Uh, you, you, you will not earn any gratification or money, or I don't know what. Uh, all the things you see in games simply doesn't exist. And uh, this is also an interesting challenge I wanted to, to test. Uh, so how could I take people's in, in this kind of simulation? And it's absolutely not a game. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything works mm -hmm. perfectly. I mean, the, the, especially the young uh, person were very uh, happy to have something uh, uh, to experience, uh, uh, which is not a game, because they say often uh, when we are playing games, we are, um, when we're going out of the game, we are very uh, 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 nervous, uh, aggressive. And, um, you know, and they say, oh, it was good to make this experience because now I'm coming out of the experience, I feel very relaxed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, interesting. Do they think of it as a musical experience? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but it's an interactive one. Uh, uh, still, it's not passive. Oh, nothing is passive in the empty mm -hmm. room. I mean, because... Uh, it's a little bit like an, uh, a soundscape or you have to be, uh, you can be in a deep listening attitude, active listening, uh, you know, uh, there's nothing passive in this experience. Right. And I guess your role, I guess, um, besides listening is to be a kind of spatializer. Is that the role of the listener or the user? Just, just try to be as you are. I mean, uh, you got two ears; use them. Mm -hmm. And um, there is not an evaluation of that uh, of your experience once you've finished. You are, uh, but the interesting thing for me was to hear from each person something different mm -hmm. when they came out, depending on their origin, uh, gender. Uh, experiences or not uh, with uh, gaming or VR and 
I've made 4,000 person have made experience. And when I conducted them, I never heard twice the same um, uh, experience from, from, from the uh, listener. Hmm. It's, so this, this is, is very a, interesting. So this, <laughs> is a, this is definitely distinctively different than, than if uh, 4,000 yeah. people heard your music at GRM. Yes. <laughs> first of all, I would never have been programmed at the GRM, first of all. And second... Right. Uh, <laughs> there wouldn't be 4,000 people. <laughs> no. The, the average is 50 or 100, but uh, not much more. But, but I guess no. the, point, the point, though, is that, that is this, um, these very individual responses you're getting that mm. wouldn't be possible if, if it was a piece for a concert medium no 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 because of the visual aspect uh, you have two layers of uh, um, perception so the sound and the, the visual and uh, these two layers combined uh, give the opportunity to to thousands of but there's still an experience for one person though as opposed to a collective experience Oh, uh, I started making my first experiences on Second Life, and I had sometimes uh, 60 to 200 persons coming into my simulations. And uh, from this perspective, uh, I went uh, on the Empty Room project on Unity 3D. My first uh, prototype was made for one person, but we can be five, seven, twenty if you want. There's so, no limitation. Okay, so when those multiple people are yes. using it, are they experiencing yes. the same result or are they experiencing different uh, different activities? Different, mm -hmm. different results for each of a person immersed because uh, uh, depending on the, on, on the position you are, you will hear something louder here, uh, less loud at a, uh, at another spot on on the on the on the platform. It all depends uh, what you are doing. Well, as a composer, do you find um, is that radically different than a composing for a concert situation in a public space, or like where if I was seated in the back, uh, I would experience it music differently than if I was sitting in the front. Is it like that, or is it a much more dramatic difference? Oh, no. I mean, I, I, I've composed, uh, I started to compose with the constraint of the platform, and uh, all the composition is made uh, to be sensed from the platform and to have the impression you are sensing uh, sounds beyond from beyond the platform. But at any point of the platform, you are hearing a homogeneous uh, soundscape. Uh, this is another aspect of the composition in VR. I mean, um, uh, you, you, you don't have a sweet spot. This means uh, the sound must be optimal everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know? So there's nothing dramatic or uh, the sound is good everywhere. From every spot you are listening at it, and the composition is made in this way. So now, is the is the piece 
interactive in that in that if the user does certain things, different types of events occur that may not occur for other users or now for instance uh, the, the only interaction we got at this stage because it's a constant work in progress it's not finished uh, what I call the first interaction is movement I mean depending on the position I have on the on the platform I will make a kind of mixing you know and my my, my body and head orientation will attract me more to this or this kind of sound, or I can decide not to move at all. This is the first interaction. We want to uh, introduce a more um, uh, tactile interaction, but in the future. This was, for instance, was not um, the problem. So in a sense, could you could you create the same piece for a non-VR context in terms of the musical no. composition? No. So like no. everything down to the exact sounds that you're using and all that, that would all, that's all it, created it for this be, environment, I guess. It's really created for this environment, for the plasticity of this environment. I call it a VR and electronic music um, it, it's a really a perfect match and um, the, the qualities of vr space is plas uh, plasticity and we don't have this plasticity when we are going through loudspeaker devices uh, loudspeaker system and uh, this is one of the reasons i want to work into vr uh, it's precisely that you can achieve uh, a specialization and composition you couldn't do uh, in the real world. Right. Yeah, I was kind of getting at how this was different. Um, by plasticity, you mean like it's very a lifelike feeling, the way you hear in the environment? Oh, it's plasticity at uh, uh, many levels. I mean, uh, because uh, you have uh, um, you, you don't have constraint as a uh, as a listener, uh, as a composer, you you are entirely free. I mean, from the ambisonic layer, we have worked with uh, mono sound stereo. Uh, in the second part of empty room, I've got uh, stereo pairs which are shifting in the space. Uh, this is also possible. Uh, I've worked with quadriphonic, uh, octophonics uh, responding each other. And uh, I mean, all, all uh, the whole thing I've put into this composition, I could never achieve it in the real life. Because uh, the system um, uh, which could do this simply doesn't exist. I, I, I had two choice, made choices. Uh, either uh, uh, will I work in octophonic or quadriphonic, uh, or uh, no? That that would have been a very uh, a constraint uh, with many constraints, and um, and um, now definitively uh, it it would not have been possible at all. <laughs> so in a sense, we're finally getting to a point where we can compose. Um, for loudspeakers in a way that we hear in the environment. Oh, it's better Other than, than that. I, I guess uh, yes, better because we can move the we can move the, uh, uh, the, the sounds the around thing. ourselves. We have that freedom. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. It's you can forget the loudspeakers in VR. In VR, you forget them total, totally. You don't see them. You don't have to. And. Uh, 
it's completely something else. I mean, you're, you don't think anymore, oh, uh, am I uh, right at the right angle between my two stereo uh, uh, loudspeakers or am I at a sweet spot, a good sweet spot uh, in ambisonic? Because the, the, the very interesting thing is that with the ambisonic layer we have, um, uh, there is no no more uh, sweet spot constraint either. I mean, normally, that's because uh, the ambisonic layer coupled with an uh, output in binaural is really the perfect uh, tool, you know. But then this is limited to to headphone experience, though. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. So once yes. we introduce playing this into a space, then all this goes away i guess yes 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 mm-hmm. yes but i guess within the virtual realm of the of the gaming engine you can uh, involve different listeners in different cities different places at the same time yes mm-hmm. yes yes you could but is is yeah. that is that just sort of a happenstance or is that a desired thing is there is there um, something that would that's uh, is there a value in in multiple people hearing it at the same time? Is there a way for them to communicate or share in that experience? Oh, they could com- they could completely communicate and share at the same time. Uh, it all depends uh, on uh, the quality of materials that we have uh, at each end. <laughs> I guess the criticism for you know online experiences is that well, it's not the same as uh, being there in person like um I, I i wasn't able to attend the conference in uh in germany but um but i was i was able to listen in on the last session through through someone's phone <laughs> um and um and i said and i said afterwards well you know why don't we have more virtual conferences you know and then this is well it doesn't replace the going on a sound walk through a german village you know but in mm. a sense, through virtual reality, maybe we could create, recreate that that sound walk through a German village. Oh, maybe, maybe. But uh, uh, my work is a little bit different than sound walking. Right, right. Of course. Mm. Um, but I guess I'm, we, I guess I'm getting at is that hyper sense, like the the sense of the complexity of listening that happens in the actual environment and getting to a point where we can achieve that in a virtual realm. Um, perhaps um, we'll step back a little bit and, and um, maybe if you can give me um, more of a, just a general overview of the Empty Room project and its evolution um, through different um, mediums, because you mentioned you started with Second Life and other platforms in the, in the past. Ah. And um, how is how is the um, musical ideas and and the composition um, behind um, behind it um, evolved through these different media? Uh, in fact, um, so I started in second life with very simple uh, simple uh, techniques. I will say uh, using um, uh, an amplitude panel which was made uh, for um, Foley. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if the people will understand this. In gaming, in fact, uh, music is uh, comes out in stereo or in 5% surround sound. 
and only a little foley sound for the falling are speedified with an amplitude panel, you know. And uh, you got directional cues with this panel, I mean, so you can sense the sound coming more from the left or the right and uh, more or less uh, amplitude. So this mimics the impression of distance. Okay, that was the old tool I got, and, and then I used, I was constrained to use a maximum nine second uh, audio files. And uh, so at the beginning I saw, okay, nine seconds, it's very constraining, but uh, in fact, if you are looking at what you can achieve with Ableton Live and Clips, uh, it's not much more complicated than that. And uh, you adapt yourself uh, at the constraints, and I built my, my first sound, virtual 3D soundscape like this. And uh, the other advantages I've got at this time is that... Uh, uh, as an avatar in Second Life, you can fly. So I could imagine my specialized devices uh, sound mapping uh, in every direction, I mean, uh, below, above, uh, flying, not flying. And uh, this was uh, another interesting aspect, and uh, an aspect I could not achieve in the Unity session uh, I, I'm developing now. Uh, because we are completely uh, immersed with uh, with, uh, with the Oculus or the HTC, and uh, I cannot really make the rendering of flying uh, uh, also interesting as it was in Second Life. I suppose as you switch from one medium to another, there's things you lose and other things uh, you gain. Yes, it, but uh, uh, with the time, uh, yes, because um, starting working on Unity was starting everything from scratch. Uh, so I, uh, my experience from uh, Second Life tools, uh, I take them with me and I try to reform the same kind of situation and tools. And from this, we are trying to make uh, uh, our next projects uh, will will be much more complex. It's step we are working step by step, and but we are working from scratch, right? And what is it that keeps all these projects under the name Empty Room? Um, what is it that they have in common, even though they've got completely different sets of uh, constraints and possibilities? If you are going on my website, uh, you, we, we, uh, the other project I've made in Second Life doesn't uh, called Empty Room. There was uh, a lot of projects, uh, five projects, I guess, if I remember well. And no, no, Empty Room is only the project uh, we made uh, on Unity. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, cause, uh, yeah, I maybe I got confused, but you referred to uh, there being different evolutions of an Empty Room. Yes, and, and there uh, are mm -hmm. different versions because uh, it's a constant work in progress since 2015. Uh, and 2015, we have made the first uh, exhibition and uh, a VR room, uh, showroom. And uh, since this time, the, con the project is constant in constant evolution. Okay, okay, and but but the the artistic goals of the project have remained the same through that evolution. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And and what are, and what are they? What are those goals or, so or objectives? 
the first goal was uh, uh, to deliver to a much wide, wider audience uh, an electroacoustic composition made in VR. Because when I was in Second Life, uh, uh, people are great in Second Life. I met a lot of fantastic people, but uh, it's not easy to use. So through uh, VR showrooms, I could uh, touch uh, a very different kind of audience. And especially uh, uh, I noticed, and this was also a kind of proof for me, that when you associate VR and electroacoustic music, um, it, 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 it's like a, it goes like a breeze. I mean, people are completely into it. Uh, they like the music, they like the kind of sound. And But these people would never have been uh, able to go to a concert of the GRM or thing like that, you know? Right. Is there is there something, and, and, and is it that they couldn't, they wouldn't know about the concert at the GRM or they wouldn't find it an experience they w- that they would value? They didn't know it and they wouldn't find it. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, with one experience, suddenly a door is open. <laughs> you know. I guess it's because they understood the VR context. Is yeah. That, is that why? Mm-hmm. The VR context uh, facilitates um, uh, the audience to go into uh, uh, electronic experimental music. Because uh. you created also a visual landscape. Uh, that you navigate through. So is that part of part of uh, what makes this experience accessible to um, to people interested in VR? Um, in this case, yes, it participates to give the wow effect. Okay, mm-hmm. but uh, I could completely imagine uh, making a project without uh, all this graphic design around. Could you have a piece that does happen in darkness, or? Oh, no. Uh, darkness. I don't like darkness uh, in this case. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, I just was curious because the um, in terms of, or at least a context that is um, oriented by the sound, I guess. I guess that would be the acousmatic uh, argument, I suppose, would be, uh, well, having no. something that is situated in the where the sound comes first, I guess. I'm too happy to have a space to exploit. So uh, mm-hmm. why sh- would I shut down the light? Uh, it's not. Uh, it's no sense for me. I know a lot of uh, digital artists uh, tr- working with uh, sound in VR, uh, making very dark ambiences. Uh, you don't see much, uh, but this is not really interesting to me. It's, it's, I, I like to to show things or to show very simple things. But uh, do you think uh, we're coming to a point where um, where the divisions of like uh, you're a visual artist or you're a composer and you're a dancer and you know that these kind of divisions are gradually dissolving and that really in the future we will all be multi-talented artists that can like in your case, um, incorporate uh, visual design and music together as one language? In fact, VR is multimedia. Mm-hmm. It's the best uh, 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 multimedia tool, in fact. So, uh, because you can integrate pictures, film, uh, 3D um, objects. 
uh, whatever you want text you can uh, you can imagine everything you want and now with uh, super duper specialization and ambisodic uh, you can unleash completely uh, your music and uh, well it's uh, i think it's the best tool we have now and with all these um, multimedia aspects of it does it require a team to create a work rather than one individual absolutely mm-hmm. I wouldn't achieve this I mean when I'm composing music uh, or preparing my music for improvisation or I can do all this alone in my studio at home uh, doing empty room no it's not possible to do everything alone you have to be involved with a team and so far I guess we have 10 person who have worked on this project but I guess you're you've also studied graphic design and other um, video and other formats so you've kind of have a language a, a language that you can share and understand and speak uh, yes yeah. uh, um, so people without that um, knowledge that you have do you think it's possible for them to um, work in that way as well or is this something that's that's an opportunity that's come to you specifically oh yes i've started uh, at the beginning before i made music i was a graphic designer and was a painter <laughs> maybe maybe this facilitates uh, what i'm doing now and uh, and then I went into uh, electroacoustic music, and then I, I worked as a sound engineer in uh, post-production, uh, audio post-production. And uh, so VR was a, a kind of um, tool that uh, that emphasizes all, all these abilities I, I had, I guess. But I'm wondering if the students coming in through school now have a bit of these eclectic uh, interests already um, that they know a little bit about how to make music with a computer and they know how to you know do stuff in Photoshop and with video programs and things like this and and some gaming uh, experience that that really in a way that that you're just you're just ahead of them yes but uh, my experience and especially on empty room is that uh, uh, you have to work in a team and with people who are good at what uh, uh, they are doing. Because uh, if I take the example of the coding, code is the only thing I, I, I do not approach because it's too much work for me, too too much, too time consuming. It's uh, and uh, so I, I I contact each time I, I need it uh, a brilliant coder, and this person in uh, one or two hours make me the code I, I need. And uh, it would be too long for me to do that. And uh, why I'm saying this because uh, uh, we we really need to work together to uh, with this kind of tools. But it still takes your I think your experience in these different um, art forms to to kind of be able to imagine it. And I would think that. So I'm a kind of um, a di- director, in fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you want to take comparison with something, yes, I'm acting like a, a film director.
That was composer and media artist Christine Webster from Paris speaking on Making Waves. Making Waves is heard here on WGXC Monthly, and it's produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. It is also available through Stitcher and other podcast apps. Thanks for listening.